Uh, so are you ready to talk about soccer ball? I don't know if this is the right time to mention this, but uh, the ball that uh, Papa Bear is confused by in that story, which is all black and white and he thinks that's funny, is a particular type of uh, soccer ball called the Telstar. Okay. I want to say it first became popularized at the 86 World Cup, which I think was in uh, Mexico City, but it might have been the 1990 World Cup in Italy. But the thing is, like, in the U.S., you know, the U.S. didn't make the World Cup between, like, the 1950s until 1990. So we really weren't paying much attention. And I guess we later when we talk about Papa Bear's uh, refusal to believe that soccer is a real sport for adults. But uh, that soccer ball with the black and white alternating hexagons was, like, the first type that was really mass sold in the u.s in a way that made it popular so a lot of us myself in particular if you grew up in like the mid 90s or the early 90s you have this image in your head that that's like what a soccer ball is yeah but they change soccer balls for every single tournament basically uh like the world cup is a big uh display or or like uh expose moment for uh soccer ball producers to unleash the latest in soccer ball technology and and it actually gets kind of funky because they'll use like different types of panels and different shapes that interconnect with the goals of making the panels lighter and thinner and having fewer seams so it doesn't affect the airflow around the ball and it doesn't curl the same way. And uh, and every single World Cup, there's a brand new ball, and without fail, the goalkeepers complain about it for the first, like, four <laughs> matches. It's so ridiculous. It arcs in a totally unpredictable. How am I supposed to do this? Um but, like, the ball has changed really significantly throughout the history of the sport, which I find totally bizarre because that's the most basic form of equipment you have in any sport. And that, you would think, has to be consistent to, like, train people in a sport. But but I digress. I'm sure that's <laughs> really fun for the, for the podcast. Uh, what, what do you want to talk about? Welcome back to Deep in Bear Country, a Berenstain Bearcast. I'm your host, Phil Gonzalez, and this week we are back on a sports subject. And as you all know, whenever the idea of sports come around, I run under the covers and shut out the rest of the world and try to pretend that I have no idea what's going on. Uh, I'm not obnoxious about it the way I used to be like 10 years ago. I don't take pride in not knowing about things. Uh, I'm not one of those people. I don't I don't talk about sports ball and make a whole lot of like fun about people who are interested in sports, because that would be completely anathema to what this entire show is about, which is respecting things that people like and respecting things that I have no knowledge of. So when it comes to this week's book, The Berenstain Bears Get Their Kicks from 1998, uh, I was kind of at a loss. Uh, It's a book about a sport that I'm not that familiar with. It's a sport that has a, in the last, I'd say, decade or so, found a new interest in America. And Who better to bring on the show to discuss a sport in a Berenstain Bears book than the gentleman who was on the show, I think it was about two years ago, discussing uh, baseball with me in the Berenstain Bears go out for the team, professional sports expert extraordinaire, Mr. David Kalen. Welcome back to the show, Mr. Kalen. Pleasure to be here. Uh, I just want to say that my uh, very thorough experience playing rec soccer in my hometown of Milburn, New Jersey, from the ages of uh, six to nine, have made me very qualified to 
essentially, if you want to consider me your ultimate authority on the sport, uh, I think that's fair. And as far as people in this house who I am talking to right now, you are the ultimate authority. Well, uh, in that case, I am uh, both uh, humbled, but uh, without an understanding of my importance in this moment. So. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, wow. So this is a book, it's kind of all about youth soccer, but, uh, I also wanted to talk a little bit about just soccer in general and how it's become quite the sport in the last few years. Uh, can you, so you, can you give us just a little bit of a background on like why soccer has suddenly become uh, a go-to sport in America? Yeah, well, I think there's a couple of things you have to look at, and I'm going to try not to get too far in the weeds here, but knowing I'm going to get pretty far into the weeds. Um, but basically, you know, for a long time in the United States, I think soccer was kind of that sport that your kids played until they were ready to take on real sports. So uh, it wasn't, uh, you know, until they were playing in Little League or until they had baseball or whatever. It also was very popular for children because it's just one of the least expensive sports to play. You can basically play it anywhere. You just need a ball and you need somewhere to kick it. But uh, the fact that it uh, is so easy to play anywhere means that they play it everywhere. And, uh, you know, soccer has been incredibly popular worldwide. It didn't really catch on in America for a long time. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. Some of it might be uh, dating back to anti-imperialist sentiment. And sometimes it might be because people just really like being able to use their hands when they do things. Uh, but soccer was pretty much not, uh, you know, a major part of the American sports world. There was a brief period in the late 70s where there was a league called the NASL, uh, North American Soccer League, that had teams like the New York Cosmos and ones like that. And there was a very short-lived period where uh, soccer became in vogue because they spent a ton of money on guys like Pele and Frank Beckenbauer. But when you spend that kind of money and you don't charge a lot of money, you're probably not going to be able to do it for very long. Uh, but I would say that uh, the reason that soccer finally became uh, kind of a large part of the American sportscape has to do with the fact that the U.S. was the host of the 1994 World Cup, which, if you're old enough to remember, was a strangely huge event. I mean, the rest of the, the world, I think, was a little mystified that it went to this country, but uh, America kind of got really into it. I mean, you can talk about there being sponsorships throughout all the different types of uh, merchandise out there. I remember, for some reason, getting a bunch of recordable video cassette tapes that all had the U.S. 1994 World Cup logo on the box because they, I think, uh, whatever company built those tapes, Fujifilm or whomever was a sponsor. I don't know. Like, were they trying to, like, promote the idea of recording games onto their tapes? I I wasn't in those meetings, so I can't tell. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's, it, you know, you can brand anything, but it always seemed like a bit of a strange choice. But, uh, you know, a couple of things happened with that World Cup. For one, the rest of the world came to America and it was the still is, I believe, the highest attended World Cup tournament ever played. Uh, oh, because, you know, if you get technical about it, the United States as a as a country that has a number of NFL stadiums and they all, you know, can hold between 65 and 90,000 people. Uh, most soccer stadiums are in Europe are smaller. They're in inner cities. It's a lot harder to have entrance and egress out of those places for massive crowds. So the U S has like the infrastructure that makes it really perfect for that kind of a tournament. Uh, mm -hmm. and it, uh, was widely attended, but also another crazy thing happened, which was the U S which, hadn't, I think, done so much as won a World Cup match since 1950, uh, got to the second round, uh, which we did because Colombia, which was one of the top-ranked teams in the world, scored an, own, scored an own goal against us, which is when you kick it against into your own net. Um, but uh, 
we we ended up getting into the second round and and we lost but it was a you know it really changed uh the way the sport was perceived a lot of excitement was generated and then a couple of years later i think in 1996 uh mls which is the national u.s soccer league was built but uh and that has slowly but surely become a pretty stable success around the country so that's one thing that you have to point to now, four years later, in 1998, the U.S. got knocked out of the World Cup in the first round in France, and they scored one goal in the entire tournament and lost to Iran, which is not exactly a global power. So um, at that point, it became a laughingstock again. But then four years later, in 2002, the U.S. made it to the quarterfinals, uh, which was a huge deal and the furthest they had gone in the tournament since, I think, the 30s. And, yeah. and that led to a whole new generation of, of high-level soccer talents that America was getting familiar with, guys like Landon Donovan and later Clint Dempsey. But um, what you end up uh, getting is from that point on, the U.S. has been pretty steadily uh, competitive on the global stage. Right now, they're having a bit of a tough time. But uh, in addition to that, there has been a widespread expansion in television broadcasting. It's a lot mm. easier now to see soccer in Europe. And when you see soccer in Europe, you know, it's it's bigger than what you would call the NFL or Major League Baseball here to some degree, which is crazy to say because those two sports are so, so huge in this country. But right. soccer is a segment of European culture that's really hard to encapsulate until you see it. But now you can see it. So the English Premier League is on all the time in the U.S. People go to bars at 7.30 in the morning to watch Arsenal. It's, it's become a huge thing. I mean, now international soccer and even uh, domestic soccer are are pretty big but it took a long time to get to that point uh and i'm pretty sure that this book must have played an enormous role in <laughs> i was gonna say this book came out in 1998 like isn't that like the worst year for it to have come um, out I, my guess if you want to know like you know I, I i've never had a book published before but my guess is that if you look at how book publishing normally goes um what you're looking at is that this guy probably wrote this book uh, in the aftermath of the 94 World Cup. Mm. And, uh, you know, it just took a while for the publishing process to go through. And by the time it actually came out in 98, or even better yet, they probably wrote it after the 94 World Cup and said, soccer is going to be a really big deal when the World Cup comes around again. So it's time the release of this for the next time that the U.S. is. Uh. But, you know, you can't uh, you can't prepare yourself for uh, mediocrity, I guess. Well, this book really sets up soccer as something that is bizarre and alien to a traditional American because it sets up Papa Bear as like your meat and potatoes, uh, uh, all American baseball and basketball loving, loving guy. Well, that was that was the stereotype for a long time is that the classic American high school male athlete would play football in the fall. They play basketball in the winter, baseball in the spring. And that means that there's obviously no time to kick a ball around. Um but uh, there are a lot of people, there were a lot, a lot of people, and there are still a lot of people who, uh, you know, basically feel the way Papa Bear does in this book. Doesn't understand what the point is of just kicking this ball around and, and wants to have his children play baseball with him like it's a real sport. But, um, you know, it's, uh, it's an interesting contrast because now I think uh, soccer is a pretty readily accepted part of the U.S. sports landscape. But, I mean... It's not that hard to look back in time and see a point when that perspective was not just some novelty of a cartoon bear in a book. It was it was pretty widespread. And Papa Bear in that whole uh, segment is really echoing, uh, you know, what was a pretty common uh, opinion at the time. 
But it is funny because you mentioned in the beginning that like soccer is always kind of was always kind of portrayed as a kid's sport. So I'm, I, I find it curious that Papa isn't sold on the idea of it being a kid's sport. Well, it may be that he just wants to make sure that his kids like the things that he likes. And as a I, I can't imagine a parent who's like that. No, no, I've never heard of it before in my life. So I definitely didn't make sure to send all of my nephews and nieces New York Mets paraphernalia to go <laughs> in hopes of brainwashing them. And they weren't even my kids. So so we also find out that Mama uh, played soccer as a cub herself, and now she's the coach of the neighborhood league. Yes, and I, I found that to be a pretty interesting twist. And I think, uh, and I'm just speculating here, but I think part of it may have to do with the fact that uh, women's soccer has been a readily accepted part of American uh, sports culture for a lot longer than men's soccer has been. Not in that men couldn't play it. But I think that if you look at sports throughout America and what women usually play when they're young, you know, uh, it's basically soccer, basketball, and then softball, maybe. I'll admit that uh, growing up as a kid, like soccer was, as far as we were concerned, it was the it was the sport that the girls played in the neighborhood. Uh, I didn't know any guys for most of my childhood who played soccer, but it was a big sport for all the girls. It was, and that's not to diminish it. It's just that there wasn't anything else available for the girls to play. Yeah, no, I, I think that was pretty widespread. And, and part of it is that it plays into some stereotypes, too, in that uh, we think that because you're not hitting each other in soccer, and that it's not, you know, as physical sport and maybe you wouldn't want to put women in a physically difficult or demanding position. Like, I'm sure that at a certain point in history, American football was just considered completely unladylike to be playing, which is a ridiculous notion, of course. But uh, I think that that was probably the case for a long time. But the interesting thing about that is that you see that kind of borne out. The U.S. women's soccer team is one of the most successful national programs in the world. It's won the World Cup, uh, I want to say, three times, but don't quote me on that. And and mm-hmm. and when the Women's World Cup happened in 99 and the U.S. won in penalties uh, in uh, China, I believe. Or sorry, it was in the U.S. I believe it was against China. Um, you know, that was a huge moment for women's sports in America. And the U.S. women's team has continued to be uh, one of the global powers. It won the World Cup the last time it was played in 2015. Uh, women who were on the U.S. team for years like Mia Hamm or Abby Wambach are, are, are still pretty big celebrities and heroes to a lot of young women in America. Uh, but it's interesting because I don't know that people necessarily had that perspective when this book would have come out, but I think the fact that Mama Bear is the coach may have related to the fact that there were probably a lot more women in high school playing soccer than men. It was uh, it was kind of seen as the sport for them. Speaking of Mama being the soccer uh, coach, this is the I, one of the few times we oh, see I, Mama outside of her house dress. Yeah, that was bizarre for me. <laughs> I, not that I uh, spend a lot of time seeing uh, what fashion choices bears have when they're outside of their homes, but that was a surprise. It, it, not Not in that I had ever thought about it. But it definitely looked weird. But, you know, anytime that uh, you want to mix up the art and uh, probably have a little fun, I can understand why. So they uh, they also point out that the uh, the soccer team's names aren't as, uh, I don't know, as traditional sports sounding as, as the baseball teams. They point out that the baseball teams are called Tigers and Sluggers and Giants, but the soccer teams are called the Cupies and the Buddies. Yeah, they're not as tough. I thought this was a little over the top. 
Uh, <laughs> I'm sure that there are plenty of youth soccer teams that had names in the 90s like the Barracudas or, or, or you know, the Extreme. I think our neighborhood soccer team was the Sharks. Yeah, yeah there, there were plenty of those. I, I think, I'm look, I respect uh, the art of this book and the message it you know, displays. I think there may have been a little poetic license taken there to accent <laughs> That's and that's all I'm going to say about that. I don't want to I don't want to just, you know, take away from the real message here. Right. <laughs> and what is the real message here, do you think? I think the real message is I think there are a lot of real messages. One is that uh, soccer is perfectly good a sport as any other sport in America. But I think more importantly, it's about the fact that uh, if you're a papa bear, you should care about the things that make your children happy and wanting to have, uh, you know, mutual experiences with them so that you can share something. I don't think it's really about soccer at all. I think it's about sharing the things that a family shares together. And when you're a parent, and I know that these are children's books, but I think this might be somewhat instructive for parents uh, as somebody who has no children. Um, sometimes you have to think about the things that make your kids happy. And it may not be something that you're so interested in to begin with, but your re- reaction to that, you could mock them, mock them, which is what uh, Papa Bear does for a lot of this book. Or you can take an interest in, and see if there's a way to share this experience with your children. Well, mock them he does because he uh, first he tries to show up sister by kicking a ball farther than she can, which I'm like, you're a, 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 a an older man who, who probably can kick a ball farther than a six year old child. But uh, he also gets angry and accidentally kicks a rock, which lays that him out. That part I thought was a little silly. Uh, just because, look, you're a grown man. You should be able to see what a rock looks like as opposed to the top of uh, some sort of, you know, in the ground glacier type thing. Right. <laughs> but also, you're a grown man and the father of this girl. You probably should be mature enough to just accept that, you know, she can kick a soccer ball. It's fine. Have a sense of humor, Papa Bear. Laugh at yourself a little bit, you know? Well, he's, he's so upset about it that he refuses to go with them to soccer tryouts. Uh, instead, he'd rather sit around and sulk on a hill. Uh, but he does watch soccer tryouts from a distance, and uh, he's impressed by what he sees. Yeah, well, you know, it's a sport that requires a lot of athleticism, and I think that that impresses him. But I think uh, what also impresses him is, you know, he's seeing his kids happy. They found something they like. They found something that they're interested in and that they want to explore. And uh, I think that it's not even about parenthood. I think that respecting the things that give different people joy and make them interested and and active are are things that, in general, we should, uh, even if you're not willing to take a mutual interest in, they're things that you should respect and uh, maybe see why they enjoy doing those things so much. Well, one of the, a bunch of the, he observes a bunch of the things that there are, that there are they're being judged on by the uh, officials, by the league officials. And uh, they have to learn a few different moves, such as the dribble. Oh, yeah. The dribble uh, was one of the first things I had to learn when I played soccer for the first time. I think I was eight. And uh, it's a lot more difficult than you think it's going to be. <laughs> um, you, you know, you're just passing it back and forth between your feet. But uh, that uh, is the basis of what forms almost all movement in the game. Unless yeah. you get really nerdy and talk about, uh, you know, Barcelona and ticky tacky passing, where it's really just kicking the ball back and forth until the defense breaks. But <laughs> barring that kind of thing, the ability to dribble and move the ball is how soccer works. So uh, that's the first thing that they have to learn. But it's interesting that he takes note of it, along with you know other things like trapping and heading. And I so, what is the trap? 
So trapping is basically there are different ways to trap the ball, but essentially it's a it's a overall term meaning to just stop the ball, but to not have it. You know, if somebody kicks the soccer ball at you hard, and you just put your foot out, the ball might bounce off your foot and then go 10, 15 yards in the other direction. And if you do that, you don't get to control the ball. You can't do anything with it. So a trap is when you're trying to trap the ball with uh, your feet or some other part of your body so that you can control it and then possess it and move it down the field in the direction that you want to go. So there are a bunch of different kinds. There's a foot trap where you catch it with the inside of your foot in such a way that you try to deaden the ball in that spot. Uh, Chest traps are probably the most common one that you're taught, which is when the ball is, you know, about chest high, you try to use your chest to corral it sort of, or at least angle yourself so the ball kind of bounces off your chest into the ground. But it's a pretty pivotal thing. If you can't trap the ball, you're basically just going to be uh, a wall that they kick a ball off of until they get it back themselves the whole time. Now, see, the official has is telling Sister to slow it down easy. Yeah, well, that's, I think, uh, because if you're a kid, you sometimes have the tendency to push pretty hard and not realize that maybe you should uh, let the ball come to you. If you run at it and then throw your chest at it, the ball is probably going to bounce further away. Um, th- th- by the way, th- this uh, these uh, soccer coaches and managers seemed uh, remarkably intense. Uh, uh-huh. They all had very stern looks on their faces, and the commissioner... Uh, clearly felt the weight of uh, the important things that he was having to determine. I really noticed his, you could tell from his expressions and his, I would say body language, but I guess we never really saw him move because these are still drawings. But yes. he just had the, <laughs> he had the impression of somebody who was really, uh, you know, he, he, he knows it's just kids, but doggone it, he's going to make sure that he has the right ones in the right places. This is important. I do appreciate that he's wearing a, an orange shirt with the word commissioner emblazoned across the front. No, you have to make sure that everybody can identify you in some way. It's, 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 it's the only way to run a soccer tryout. Yeah, it's like wearing a uniform, you know. <laughs> so Mama demonstrates the header. Yes. Uh, the header as a kid was kind of like the uh, kind of the, 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 the show-off move. It was the thing that all the kids wanted to show they could do. Uh, how important is heading the ball? I know it got a little controversial in youth soccer for a while there. I work with people with brain injury, and so like people always mention heading the ball uh, as as a as a thing in youth soccer. Like, should we let our kids do yeah, it? Yeah, there's a lot of varying schools of thought about that. Now, how important it is? Uh, I mean, it's it's pretty significant, but it also depends a lot on the type of offense you're going to run. If you're gonna, okay. if you're going to run an offense that basically involves a lot of taking the ball out wide on the flank, I'll, I'll try to use layman's terms here, but if you have a bunch of people in the penalty area, which is the area in front of the net, uh, a lot of plays involve crossing the ball into that area and hoping one of your players can jump up and with their head redirect the ball into the net because obviously they can't use their hands uh, unless they're Diego Maradona in the hand of God playing the 1982 World Cup, but that's another story. <laughs> um, I'll get into that later. But uh, you're you're obviously not allowed to use your hands, and you can't. It's hard to get your feet that high. So your goal is to head the ball. So whenever somebody takes the ball out wide and crosses it in the middle, that's probably the way you're trying to get to it. Uh, whenever you're taking a corner kick, uh, that's basically the biggest way that you try to get the ball into the net a lot of the time. And also, if the ball is kicked deep and you're trying to gain possession and you happen to have another player on the other team who's kind of jostling with you to get position of the ball, uh, you're probably not going to wait for that ball to hit the ground. 
because the other guy might be able to get to it first. So you're going to try and head the ball in those scenarios, try and steer it away from that player or to put it towards one of your players. So heading has a pretty significant role. There are certain offenses where it has bigger roles than others. But it has become a pretty big source of, I don't know if I want to say controversy, but it has definitely become a major topic of discussion in youth leagues because your skulls and your brains are not fully developed yet. So, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, the question is, are these causing damage? You know, is it possible that you're giving children sub-concussions that are going to make it hard for them to develop their brains as they go through puberty and become adults? Um, I'll be honest here. This is going to shock you and all your listeners, but I'm actually not a uh, scientific researcher. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I know. It's I give off the impression that I am, but... Uh, I decided that it was too easy. And so I went to, you know, try and make a living in journalism instead, which is a real challenge. But yeah. uh, <laughs> the, uh, you know, the, the, I think a lot of the uh, determinations on whether or not heading is safe or healthy are kind of the, the jury is still sort of out. And uh, there has been talk of banning it in certain youth leagues to make sure that kids grow up and develop properly before introducing that part of the game. But there's also the counter argument that a lot of people who, are involved in the sport, say, which is that if you don't teach them how to do it when they're young, they're not going to know how to do it. But right. And they're older if they're still playing competitively. So it's a tricky subject. And, and you know, I don't have children at the moment, but uh, how do I feel about the idea of them trying to steer a, you know, sizable spheroid that's flying at them at 20 or 30 miles an hour? I don't know that I love that idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, from talking to people I uh, who, I've, who I've actually spoken to about soccer, who play soccer, and have actually some who've gotten brain injuries from soccer, uh, they always point out that soccer is a far more uh, far more contact oriented sport than people than people usually give it credit for. There's a lot of a lot of falls, a lot of a lot of rough action out on the field that you tend to think because there's no hands involved, it's not you know there's not as much of a threat. But uh, but people people get injured playing soccer pretty regularly. Oh no, it's a very physical sport. I think I you know when I was growing up, I played football in high school, American football. Uh, and that always seems more dangerous because it's guys running into each other. Uh, and I don't want to make it seem like it's not. It, if you're not playing it correctly, it is a very dangerous game. But uh, soccer kind of didn't really have that reputation. But there were studies that said that uh, injuries happened at a higher frequency amongst high school athletes in soccer than it did in football. Mm-hmm. That Part of that might have been a lack of reporting it because football players pretend that they're super tough. But right. Um, but it's a very physical game, uh, whether it's getting fouled by somebody who's trying to disrupt your run down the field if they trip you, whether or not you have players lined up uh, before a corner kick or something and they're pushing and shoving for position or trying to jump higher than the other person to head the ball somewhere. And I mean, if you look at European teams, these, uh, you know, center defenders, cent- uh, you know, def- defenders in the back of the field, one guy that comes to mind is a, a Belgian player named Vincent Company. He could be a linebacker in the NFL. He is a massive human. Uh, the U.S. national team had a player for a while named Aguchi Onyewu, who was like that. Uh, Virgil van Dijk, who is a defender for Liverpool, is also a sizable guy in the back. So these men are not huge by coincidence. They're big because right. they can use their bodies to physically outposition and overpower people. There is a lot more physicality in the sport than people really give it credit for. So uh, at this point in the story, uh, Papa goes to harass the commissioner. Yes, harass is probably the appropriate term, I would say. 
Yes, he's 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 being a typical parent at this point. Yeah, I was uh, I was. This is not the same sport, but I was an umpire for little league baseball at one point when I was in high school, and uh, I think I was fifteen or sixteen years old, and I grew up in a relatively affluent town in New Jersey. And uh, all of the horror stories you hear about parents who will yell at uh, referees or, or uh, I guess in this case, commissioners, administrators of a youth sport, uh, they can be a lot more difficult to deal with than you think. So uh, <laughs> when you're back there, you, you kind of want to just say to these parents, leave me alone. Your child will be fine. I'm doing my job. But uh, the commissioner handles it all relatively gracefully, I think. Yeah, he taxed. He, he uh, Papa wants to know if his kids made the team, and of course the commissioner's like, "Yes, they made the team." He tacks up the 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 team list on the tree. Uh, he doesn't. <laughs> I, I do think it's funny that like uh, this is a pretty a pretty decent setup. You see all these like people in their official gear. They've got like the the uniforms, and uh, when the list finally goes up, he just nails it to the closest tree. Yes. Well, I think that in Bear World. That must be the most appropriate and official place to put it. I'm just guessing. I do like how the uh, how his overall persona kind of shifts very quickly because Papa Bear comes over and he says, "You know, uh, you know, these are my kids. Did did they make the team?" And and the commissioner is like, "As a matter of fact, they did." <laughs> I know it's written on a page, but this is how I imagine him saying it. And then the next line is something like, "Now please get out of my way. I need to post this." Yeah, now if you'll excuse me. Yeah, as if as if he was very excited to deliver this good news, but very quickly Papa Bear has irritated him, and he wants to <laughs> go take care of his job. Well, Papa's so proud of his kids that he decides to uh, celebrate, and because they were like, he was he didn't let any of the kids know that he was watching them from afar. And when they get home, brother's like, let's play some baseball, and he tosses the ball to Papa, and Papa tries to head the head the ball. Yeah, that's uh, adorable in the context of this book. I do not recommend you trying it at home. No, it's not even a softball. That's a baseball. Yeah, no, baseballs are very hard. And yeah. uh, I have taken a baseball off the head before. Uh, I don't recommend it, is what yeah. I would say. Yeah, it knocks him clean yeah, down. No, he gets. I, I couldn't tell if the, in the book if he actually gets knocked unconscious or if he just falls to the ground for comical purposes. But, uh, but you know, it's in a, in a, not that I would ever recommend doing this if you're in the same situation as Papa Bear, but it is sort of endearing. I think that's the point. He's he's showing his kids that he watched. They didn't know he was there, but he saw. And not only did he like what he saw, he's proud of them. And he wants them to know that he's ready to be taken into this magical world of soccer that they are involved in. <laughs> and, uh, you know, heading the baseball off his head is his way of saying, I love baseball. I want you to love baseball. But we can learn about what you love right now. No, I think it's a great lesson. I think that Papa, I think Papa swallows his pride and does a pretty good job at at, at being a good parent by the end of this book. Yeah, it, it's very surprising that a Berenstain Bears book would end up with the parents or children learning the ultimate positive lesson. But <laughs> yeah. uh, he certainly does here. And, you know, it's nice. And I assume that they play soccer for hours upon hours in their uh, yard uh, once the book is over. I guess we'll never know. That's part of the mystery of it. But. Right. We don't ever really come back around to any of this. Uh, when you say play soccer for hours and hours, I remember playing soccer just in gym uh, in high school and uh, having never played it really before or since like elementary school and being surprised at just how exhausting soccer is. Oh, yeah. Well, so one of the crazy rules about soccer, I think now in your uh, I should not say it's crazy. Uh, in gym class, it's probably a little different. There's a rule in professional soccer that you only get a certain number of substitutions throughout a game and everybody else has to play the entire time and it's 90 minutes. 
uh, plus whatever stoppage time you have at the end of each half. And managers don't always use their substitutions, and depending on the league, there's only two or three of them. So at mm-hmm. least eight people on that field are going to be running for the entire 90 minutes. And, uh, you know, I think they've done studies that show that the average soccer player in one of the top European leagues over the course of this 90-minute game will run something like eight to ten miles. Wow. And, and you know, that's nine-minute miles for an hour and a half. Uh, it's definitely faster than most people can do as adults for one mile, let alone consistently for an hour and a half. I mean, you know, it's exhausting. It is a brutal sport in terms of how much it can wipe out at you. Uh, if you're playing it at a top level, or even if you're a kid, you know. And you made the point earlier that uh, that soccer is kind of a uh, it's a kind of the sport for everyone. Like because it because all you need is a ball and a and a place to play. Uh, it, it's a sport that you see people just from all walks of life playing. Yeah, no, it has a very big universality to it that I'm not sure there are many other. I don't even want to say sports. I don't think there are many other communal human experiences that are so ubiquitous and easily uh, achievable. There's a a fairly well-known book about the history of soccer and how it developed. And the title of it is just the ball is round. Oh, and uh, I think that the point of that is basically it's a very simple game at its core. And what makes it so simple or the fact that it is so simple is what makes it so accessible and so beloved. Although there is a British, uh, a former British player, uh, I want to say his name is Gary Lineker. I might be I might be forgetting it, but he was once asked after a uh, soccer match, you know, some sort of question, and uh, he had just lost and was exhausted. And he said, you know, football because in Europe they call it that. He said football is a fairly simple game. Twenty two men chase a ball around for ninety minutes, and at the end, the Germans win. <laughs> so, uh, but that said, the things that make soccer so simple make it so easy to pick up and so accessible, and that has made it. Uh, a fairly large part of the human experience in a way that not many things on this planet are. There's almost no country in the world that you can go to where you can't find children playing soccer somewhere. And that includes the United States. So I'm going to ask you, uh, since people don't, since uh, I would say like a lot of American listeners don't know a lot about the history of soccer. If you had like one story from like soccer history that like because you know we have like the great moments in hockey we have great moments in football that you know sort of people know these stories they've seen the movies what's just a great story from the history of soccer you know this is kind of obscure maybe but there there was a uh a famous soccer match and i hope i'm not uh butchering it that's called uh the wonder from Bern. um and, and actually this may get a little too political but in uh the 1954 world cup uh, one of the biggest, best teams in the world was Hungary. And they were a dominant team, but they also, the national soccer team was kind of uh, used as a distraction by the state because it was a, a country under Soviet oppression and uh, people didn't really want to think about how tough their lives were. And so the government used this soccer team as a distraction so people wouldn't kind of realize it. Um, and in the 1954 World Cup, the I want to say it was the final, and I'm going to look it up on my phone right now just to make sure that I'm not uh, making this up. Uh, in the 1954 World Cup, the final was between West Germany and Hungary. Now, West Germany, I want to say they were competing for the first time since the end of World War II. And Germany, for 10 years after the war, was a very difficult place to live and a place that didn't really feel very good about itself. Um 
But uh, in that tournament, the Germans, the West Germans, got to the final, and they played this big, bad team from Hungary. And they ended up winning the final 3-2, to two, which uh, had massive implications outside of soccer for both countries. In West Germany, it was the first time that the people in that country had a reason to feel good about themselves in 10 years. Uh, and uh, I, a lot of people point to that kind of as a moment where Germany began to turn its history, whereas now it's one of the strongest, wealthiest countries in the world. But even more than that, it's a country that a lot of people look on, uh, you know, very positively, whereas at that time, post-World War II, it obviously was not. I, I believe a recent poll uh, taken ranked Germany as the country viewed most positively by citizens of other nations around the world. Um, oh. Now, on the flip side of that, uh, when Hungary lost, it was a huge... Uh, you know, a huge disaster for that team. And it caused a lot of consternation and frustration in Hungary and actually re- led to a uh, small revolution uh, oh. from people in Hungary who kind of realized once the soccer team didn't win that maybe things weren't so great, uh, including their country. So that I, I, the uh, revolution did not end up being successful. But uh, to me, that's a, a part of soccer that symbolizes how much it can mean to people around the world and also the kinds of far-reaching effects it can have in their culture because they, t- you know, it has such importance to them. However, uh, I would point to the, I know I brought this up earlier, but the 1992 Women's World Cup, you know, went down to penalty kicks in the final and then the U.S. defeated China on a penalty kick by Brandy Chastain, uh, who, uh, you know, famously celebrated with her teammates by ripping her shirt off and it was a, a, a picture that was on the cover of Time and Sports Illustrated all over the place. Um, and, uh, I think there are a lot of people who point to that not as a great feel good moment for the country, uh, but also a moment that was very inspiring to a whole generation of women across the United States. It was one of the first times, uh, in American history that there was a great, uh, female sporting achievement on a national scale, uh, outside of, uh, gymnasts in the Olympics, like Mary Lou Retton or ice skating, uh, that type of thing. It was one of the first times that, uh, a women's sport had, a mass audience and a universality to it in this moment of uh, joy that I think was uh, palpable across the country. Well, see, I think those are both great stories because I think they both illustrate like the different the different ways that the sports of a nation and the sports that that we watch, that we consume, that we share with our kids, that we share as families, uh, have these have these reverberating impacts that affect the you know, and what the Berenstain Bears is all about is community, and it affects this sort of global national community uh, where that that sort of brings to people together and allows them to share in an event uh, that they can all feel emotional about, they can feel pride in, they. Can can feel despair over, but it's a way of it, like, like the first story you told says it's a way of unifying people and showing them like, and kind of like getting them geared up for what what their what their identity is about, what their country is about, and, and of course to the detriment of people who you know put a lot of emotion into it and then end up losing and feel terrible about it. But it's it's a great illustration of just how powerful that can be. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, and uh, I think just to bring it all back here on definitely a smaller scale uh, than, uh, say, the political ramifications of the World Cup. Uh, I think that's what Papa Bear is doing there at the end when he decides to head that baseball. He's saying, I want to be a part of this now. I want to be a part of the experience and the community that you guys are entering into. And, uh, you know, it's all about being, uh, for them, a unit 
but uh, relating to the people that are important to you. Well, David Kalen, thank you so much for joining me again. My pleasure. Uh, I'm about to go uh, and uh, watch the Giants play the 49ers, so I'm going to say right now that recording this podcast was definitely the high point of my evening. Oh, no. <laughs> well, I'm glad, I, I'm glad. in addition to your uh, gourmet cooking, I could also add a little bit of uh, levity to your evening. No, uh, the pleasure uh, was all mine, really. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, David. If you're interested in picking up a copy of the Berenstain Bears Get Their Kicks, it is available on ebook. Uh, you can find it wherever you buy ebooks. I found mine through Kobo.com, but you can also find it through uh, Amazon or whoever you buy ebooks. It's uh, it's readily available. The formatting is nice, but I would recommend if you can get your hands on the uh, the print edition, uh, pick up a copy of the print edition. There's some wonderful illustrations, some wonderful layouts. Uh, as David was saying, uh, it, it's very humorous. Uh, it's got a lot of slapstick and uh, some nice illustrations of Cubs playing soccer. And for everyone else out there, you can find me on the World Wide Web at uh, BerenstainBearCast.wordpress.com. You can find me on Twitter at BStainBearCast. Uh, you can find me on Patreon at uh, Patreon.com forward slash Deep in Bear Country if you want to throw a few bucks my way. And uh, if you want to get your kids involved in soccer, look it up. You've probably got a, a local youth soccer club somewhere around in your area uh all right everyone thank you so much for joining me thank you once again to david kalen and for everyone else out there i will see you all next time deep in oh and uh never mind deep in bear country